Good evening, family. It is good to be here again this evening. Uh, happy to be working here with the Saudi Church of Christ and happy to see a lot of visitors here this evening. And this evening we'll be wrapping up a series that we started back in January on spiritual disciplines. The first lesson, of course, was on praying. When we pray, we need to pray what Jesus prays. We don't need to pray like hypocrites, repeating meaningless phrases and things like that, but being true to who God is, we need to be mindful of who we're praying to and why we're praying and be, be forgiving when we pray. And when we give, we need to give uh, secretly, uh, not as a show of wealth or as uh, any way of trying to garner favor with others, but we, we give from the heart in secret. This evening, I want to tell you a story. In 1901, a group of Greek sponge divers got blown off course. And assuming, uh, figuring out where they were, they assumed one island is just as good as another, and they jumped in the water. And when the first man went down, he was horrified at what he found. Men and horses staring up at him from the sea floor. And he goes back and reports to the captain of the ship what he saw, and he thinks that's ridiculous. And so they go down there, and what they found were statues, coins, vessels of, of, of bronze, of pottery, objects of glass, and, and a variety of other things. It was from a ship that sank over 2,100 years before, before the time of Christ, this ship sank. And it was laden with treasures. And within a few years, these things were pulled up carefully from the seafloor uh, off the island of Antikythera and taken to the National Museum in Athens. And they were put on display for, for dignitaries, for, for paying tourists, for the people of Greece to appreciate all the, 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 the beautiful objects of their past. And so... Many of these items drew crowds, but one was stuck into a box and just kind of put on a shelf and forgotten about. And the First World War comes and goes, the Second World War comes and goes, half a century comes and goes before an archaeologist opens the box, looks inside, and thinks, hmm, that's odd. You don't normally find a gear embedded inside of a rock. That's not typically where you find gears. And so he starts to clean this thing off, begins to study it. And initially, the, the thought was, well, this is obviously something from maybe a few hundred years ago that fell off of a ship passing by and just happened to land right on top of uh, a shipwreck. Hap just happened to land on top of all this other sunken treasure. But as they cleaned it up, they, they start looking at the markings. And the markings aren't newer markings. They're, they're Greek. And they match up with the time and the place that these objects would have come from. And so he starts asking himself, what is this doing here? And what he found was, is what's known as the Antikythera mechanism. This thing's really cool. Um, this is what it looks like now, and that's what people think it might have looked like before. The interesting thing about the Antikythera mechanism is geared technology, as far as we know is only about maybe 800 years old or so. 
this kind of level of sophistication much newer than that. But apparently the Greeks were way ahead of the curve, and they just didn't continue to build on their technology. This thing, really what it's for, it's a calendar. And what you would do is you'd wind it to a particular day, and you could know in the future what, what, the, what the constellations are going to be, when the eclipses are going to be. And so here we find a, a piece of, of, of hidden treasure, something that was stuck on a shelf and forgotten about until we came along and cleaned it up and figured out how wonderful this thing is. Well, tonight, we've got a piece of, of, of hidden treasure in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins uh, his, his section on, on when we blank, you know, when, we, when we give, when we pray, and he finishes up in this third section of when you fast. Jesus says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Don't, don't put on a sad face. Don't, be, don't, don't wear a mask. He says, don't put on a sad face like the hypocrites do. Hypocrite uh, means, means a stage actor, uh, a pretender. Uh, and, and so this idea of putting on a sad face of a, of a hypocrite, the sad face of an actor, is, is kind of like a Greek tragedy, wearing a mask to, to hide how you're really feeling. He says, don't, don't pretend to be sad. He says, for they disfigure or, or neglect, he says, they disfigure their faces or neglect their appearance. What the practice he's referring to was, is, is many Jews in this day and age, um, on market days, market days were typically Mondays and Thursdays, they would get up in the morning and they go, ah, market day, time to fast. Why are you going to fast on a market day? Because that's when you're going to see everybody in town. You want everyone to see your fasting. So, so you put on your sackcloth. You put on these rumpled old fasting clothes that you don't ever wash because they're, they're the grossest clothes you have, and you're going to wear your fasting clothes, and you're not going to fix your hair. You're just going to leave your bed head the way it is. And maybe you're going to get a little bit of white powder, and you're going to rub it on your face to kind of make you look like you've got a sickly powder, like you've been fasting a really long time because you're so amazingly pious and holy. But really, you're faking it. He says, don't be like these people who are faking their piety. Don't fake it. He says, they fast so that they may be seen by others or noticed by men. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Some translations say their reward in full. Their reward for their fasting, for, the, for this affliction that they're putting on, is, is just to be noticed. That's all you get. You're noticed and you're done. They've received their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face so that your fasting will not be seen or or noticed by others, but by our Father who is in secret and our Father who sees in secret will reward you. How did God's people get to this point? How did they get to this point where, where fasting became this thing of, of, of a show of piety? How did, how did they get to the point of, of fasting in the first place? Why, why do we fast? Of course, three of the most notable fasts are the, are the big fasts of the Bible. You've got Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, and he's up there for 40 days and nights, no food or water. 
We've got Elijah in 1 Kings 19, where he's fed by an angel as he's going to travel to Horeb. He says that you know, he's fed by the angel, and he travels for 40 days to Horeb, and he doesn't eat. He says this food sustains him. And then, of course, we have Jesus in the wilderness, and that's recorded in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. If you have your bulletins with you tonight, um, I'm not going to be reading all of these verses. I encourage you to write these down. Go back and study these during the week. Um, because I think fasting is, is really a marvelous study. So again, it's, it's the, the, first, the 40-day fast are in Exodus 34, 1 Kings 19, and then Matthew chapter 4. And in these three instances, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are preparing for a transition. They're, they're moving into a time. Now, Moses, he's already the leader of the people, but he's about to bring down the law. He's not just fasting for himself as a leader. He is fasting for the people of Israel. Elijah, too, is again fasting for the people of Israel and for his ministry to them because the kingdom is broken. There are evil kings on the thrones of Israel and Judah. And he is going outside of Israel. He's, he's leaving God's promised land altogether for a period of time. And then Jesus, he is entering into his ministry. And no bigger change in Israel's history ever happened than, than Jesus. Initially, the, the Day of Atonement is where we get our first kind of uh, the, the, the fasts for the people. Um, in, in Leviticus 16, and then it's, it's echoed again in Numbers 29, Moses is giving the law, and it's about the, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement has a lot of stuff going on, and we're not going to get into all the aspects of the Day of Atonement. There are, there are goats that are being offered, goats that are being sent off into the wilderness, um, there are sacrifices, and on one of the days for the, for the Day of Atonement, the people, it says, the people afflict themselves. And the Hebrew word there means afflict themselves. We have a good translation. We don't have to do a word study there. But this idea of affliction carries with it a lot of things in the Jewish practice. So for thousands of years, on the Day of Atonement, Jewish people will fast. They won't wear shoes in some cases. Um, others uh, you know, may go without power in modern days. Uh, they will do things that are deliberately inconvenient and uncomfortable. And it's, it's part of this idea of atoning for sin. So there begins to begin this, this tie between fasting and, and sin. In 1 Samuel... The, the prophet or the, the judge Samuel comes to the people of Israel and they have been worshiping Baal, Asherah, and these other Canaanite deities. And Samuel opposes them. He, he comes to them and he tells them about their sin and what the, what the ultimate payment of their sin is going to be. And the people repent. They are heartbroken at what they have done. And so, in their repentance, they choose, as a nation, to fast. Again, in 2 Samuel, 
after David had committed his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan comes to David and he tells him, he says, your, your child is going to die. And sure enough, when the child is born, the child is sick and gets sicker and sicker. And David goes to God in prayer. He fasts. And in many cases, people tend to think that what David is doing is that he is, he is fasting and praying for the life of his child. But David also, in this period of time, pins Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit unto me. That is a psalm of repentance, and it's in this state of repentance that David is fasting. And when the child dies, David rises, he washes his face, and he goes and fixes himself a meal. In 1 Kings, a really interesting, uh, really interesting story in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 21, where King Ahab is ruling over Israel, and, and he looks out and he sees this vineyard. It belongs to a guy named uh, uh, Naboth. He has Naboth killed at his, at his, wife's, uh, his wife's urging. Eh, just get rid of the guy. Take it. And Elijah comes to Ahab, and he tells him about his sin. And Ahab, we, we tend to think of Ahab as being just this very terrible, irredeemable, awful king. But when Elijah speaks to him about his sin, read the end of this, this section. Read verses 25 and 27. What is his reaction but sorrow and repentance and great grief at his sin? Ahab, one of the worst kings that Israel ever had, it says, like, you know, never in Israel's history has anybody been as bad as Ahab. And Ahab repented of his sin. Right up until... His fast was interrupted by his wife who told him, you know, hey, forget that. Don't feel bad about this. You did the right thing killing that guy and taking his stuff. Um, when we choose to fast, we need to stick to that decision because fasting is a powerful thing. Fasting is often paired with prayer. Some people say it's an aid to prayer. I think it's not necessarily an aid, but it's something that we do in conjunction with prayer during certain times. And when we choose to do so, we need to stick to that choice. And, and you know, whether we choose to do a fast for, for six hours or for a day or for three days, stick to that decision and don't let anything get in your way. In Second Samuel, sorry, uh, in the book of Jonah, in the book of Jonah, the... The prophet Jonah goes to the, the, the evil city of Nineveh. Uh, if you haven't done a, a study on the city of Nineveh, Nineveh was a city that belonged to the Assyrians and was just about the worst place you could ever find yourself in the ancient world. Uh, Assyria was about as bad as the world's ever gotten, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he says, In 40 days, this city will be destroyed. That's all we know about Jonah's sermon. And apparently that worked because from the king down to the lowest people, the entire city of Nineveh, which took three days to get across, if you were walking, uh, the whole city repents. In sackcloth and in ashes, 
They, 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 they put on their, their, their clothing for mourning and they cover their heads in dirt. And not just the king and the people, but also the livestock are commanded to fast as well. The people would withhold food from their animals so that everybody would join in this fast of repentance. Fasting is, is, is often in, in the Bible paired in times of, of grieving. See, fasting isn't just, it doesn't just fill a single function. Um, that would be like saying, you know, you only pray when you want something. Prayer fills in multiple sections of, of, the, of the Christian life, and then fasting has a place as well to fill in, in, in various aspects of our walk with God. In Judges chapter 20, the tribes of Israel find themselves in a bad spot. They have effectively declared war on the tribe of Benjamin. And the first day at war, the people of Israel go against Benjamin, uh, much inferior in size, and they kill almost, I believe it was 18,000 men of Israel. And so they seek God in prayer, and they go, God, do we need to be attacking them? God goes, yes. And they go back, and again, they lose 22,000 in the second day. In two days, the army of Israel being urged on by God, loses 40,000 soldiers. And they're at a complete loss of what to do. You know, God, we sought you. You said we should go, and then we lose 22,000 people? What are we doing, God? And it says they fasted, and they prayed, and they sought God. And the next day they went out to battle, and they put Benjamin to heel. In 1 Samuel 31, the, later in the history, little more than a few generations later, the King Saul is killed. He goes up against, uh, to fight against the Philistines, and Saul is struck by an arrow, and ultimately uh, Saul dies. His three sons die. And the bodies are collected by the Philistines who take them to one of their cities and they hang up the bodies. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, upon hearing this, go by night and retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons. They take them away, they burn the bodies, they bury the bones, and under the terebinth trees there, they fasted for seven days. And apparently at some point during this period of, of mourning and of fasting, they send a man off who runs to David, clothes torn, dirt on his head. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we get David's response to this. When David hears about the death of Saul, he weeps, he tears his clothes, and he cries out to God and fasts because of the loss of the Lord's anointed. David fasts and grieves over Saul, a man who tried to kill him on multiple occasions. In occasions of, of, of national tragedy, the people of Israel responded to those tragedies with fasting. Perhaps one of, one of the more uh, common reasons for fasting throughout the Old Testament is in praying for others. After the exile, the, the, people, of, the people of Israel taken, taken into Babylon, and we have the example of, of Daniel in chapter 9. 
And Daniel is, is motivated to pray and to fast for the people of Israel because of this realization that, that Israel has utterly rejected God's law. And, and in his probably a very complex emotional state of, of, of grief and of shock and of, of disappointment in his people, Daniel fasts. Because Israel had turned aside from the law, and he prays that Israel would return to God and that God would be generous and God would forgive Israel and return them to their land. And again, in the book of Esther, beautiful story in chapter 4, as we're reaching this kind of pivotal moment in the story, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, goes to Esther and says, You know, hasn't God prepared you for a time such as this? You know, what are you going to do about this, Esther? because she was being reticent to go and talk to the king because she feared for her life. And she says, go to the Jewish people. Fast and pray for three days and three nights. Me and my handmaidens will do likewise, and I'm going to go and talk to the king. So in preparation for a difficult conversation, a difficult uh, confrontation, uh, difficult and dangerous, perhaps, for Esther, she goes and, and responds with fasting. In Nehemiah, in the first part of the, cha- the, first part of the book, uh, Nehemiah, again, he is fasting and praying for Israel, uh, for the people who are, who are coming out of the exile and being returned to their land. And in Ezra, uh, a, a beautiful story here. Well, actually, Nehemiah, let's go back to Nehemiah. He is, he's fasting and praying for Israel because he, he's homesick. He, he's, he's the, he is the, the wine bearer for the, for the king, and, and he fasts and he prays and he just looks terrible. And he goes before the king, and the king says, Nehemiah, what's, you look awful. What's the deal? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I've been in grief for my nation I mean, oh, king, live forever. I, I don't mean it. This is great. I love, I love working for you, king. It's great. But my people, it's pretty terrible. And the king hears him, and this is the turning point for Israel. After, after generations of people praying and fasting, Israel gets to be returned to their land, and Ezra is there, and when he responds with prayer and fasting, because he's there taking them back to the, back to the promised land, back to their homeland, and... He finds himself at this moment where he's like, well, we said that our God was powerful. And we've got a lot of enemies between here and Israel. How are we going to be kept safe? And he fasts and he prays to God for safety for the people of Israel as they make their passage because he does not want to disgrace God by asking the king for soldiers. He says, I want to put my hope and my, my salvation in you, Lord, not in the king. And God rewards them. And they're returned to the promised land. And in Ezra 10, Ezra again responds with, a, with a, an all-night prayer and fasting. He doesn't sleep. He gets on his knees. He fasts. He prays. He doesn't take any food or water because of the faithlessness of Israel. They've been returned to their land, and still they don't have faith. All these have been Old Testament references, but again, in the book of Acts, we have two references nearly back-to-back in, the book, in, the, in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, we have the church of Antioch. 
and they're ready to send out missionaries and they're fasting and praying about who to send and ultimately they decide they're going to send out uh, this guy named Barnabas and this guy they're probably not so sure about named Saul. And I don't know, I've heard people say maybe maybe they were just trying to get Saul out of their church. Like, I don't know, I don't trust this guy. Let's get rid of him. Let's send him somewhere else. But they fast and they pray and they choose Barnabas and Saul to be their missionaries for Christ. Barnabas and Saul, later in the next chapter over, they respond with prayer and fasting when selecting elders for one of the congregations that they were working with. So, fasting isn't comfortable. The first reference that we have of it, it is, it is referred to as an affliction. And I think of, of the spiritual disciplines we've talked about, fasting is probably one of the the most difficult, and the least common. When fasting, there's a few things that we need to take into account. Um, first off, don't, don't just fast because you feel like, well, I guess, you know, the preacher talked about we should fast. I guess I should fast. Don't, don't do that. Don't fast because I've pointed to a bunch of verses and said, people in the past fast. You should fast too. Fast with a purpose. Have a reason for fasting. Uh, if you're if you're looking for a reason to fast, fast for fast and pray for God's church that we would have the the, the boldness to go and proclaim the gospel. Um, if you feel that you are struggling with sin, fast and pray over that. Con- confess your sin, fast and pray about it. Have a purpose. For your fasting. Don't just fast for no reason. If you're fasting for no reason, you're just hungry. And I don't want you to do that. Um, start small. Eight hours is, is perfectly fine. Ezra did an eight-hour fast, and it was effective. Um, length of time does not make your fast any better. Um, you know, don't, don't start off with a 40-day fast. Um, you know, oftentimes people will fast for, for 24 hours. Um, and in some cases, I know there are many people here that may be saying, well, I'm, I'm diabetic or, or I have this condition or I, I don't think I can fast. You know, should I fast if I can't? If you can't fast, Daniel, um, there's a record of him where he fasted for a, a period of time and he took no meat and he drank no wine and he didn't put on any fine lotions. That was his fast. He, he kind of got rid of the, the finer pleasures of his life, and he fasted for a longer period of time, and pretty much he ate vegetables and drank water, um, which he also did in the very beginning of his book. He, he, he does this at a number of times in his life, and it was effective for him. So, so start small. Start with what you can do. Uh, there is um, an early Christian writing where it says, be, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, quoting Scripture. And it says, and if you can't do that, do what you can. I think that's pretty good advice when we're talking about fasting. If you, can't, if you can't fast, do what you can. When you fast, pray, worship. Anna, in Luke chapter 2, it says that she, she fasted and prayed and worshipped God for decades. Um, I don't know if that was a continuous fast or, or intermittent fasts, um, but it was effective. You know, she got to rejoice over over Mary and over Christ and and uh, and and over John the Baptist. So, uh, 
fasting is effective. And, and, and if you choose to fast, you know, have, have a reason to fast. Define the period of time that you choose to fast for, whether it's eight hours or 24 hours, or, or you know, if after you have done some of the smaller fasts, if you want to go for three days, by all means. Um, but stick to your plan. Uh, and be patient with yourself. There's going to be moments when you, when you start fasting because we are such creatures of habit that you will walk through the kitchen and you will reach for the jar of jelly beans left over from Easter. And you will pop three or four in your mouth. And right as soon as you swallow those jelly beans, you'll realize, oh, I'm fasting. Put the jelly beans away. Put them in the cabinet. Put them out of sight, out of mind. Pray about it. And forgive yourself, you know. Be patient with your body. Um, one of the things that you're likely to encounter, not just being hungry, but irritability. And I think this is one of the great benefits of fasting. Uh, people my age talk about being hangry. You know what hangry is? It's when you're hungry, angry. Um, so fasting is an opportunity to exercise a spiritual discipline of, of patience. Uh, when we're hungry, we are more irritable. And as we are trying to subject the flesh and strengthen the spirit, Satan's going to nedge us. Um, I guarantee you, the first, time you, the first time you fast, I guarantee you, someone's going to offer you a free meal at your favorite restaurant. Someone's going to bring donuts to the office and they're going to sit them on your desk. And the best one's going to be right on top looking at you. Satan's going to try to keep you from fasting. But uh, be patient with yourself. Be patient with others. And, and be patient with God as, as you pray. Uh, fasting is, is a, a beautiful and powerful practice uh, that I believe that has a lot of benefit uh, to the church today. I, I would by no means say that you must fast um, but I, I do think that, that fasting is certainly appropriate. We have examples of the early church fasting. We have examples of Christ fasting. And we have a, a, a list of reasons for people to fast. Um, so pray about this. And, and if you do find a time that is appropriate, I encourage you to, to try it out. If you haven't done it before, and if you've done it before, um, continue in this. Um, but returning to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when you fast anoint your head wash your face so that your fasting may be in secret the, the goal of fasting is, is not to broadcast it it is private in nature and it's between us and God If when we study the Sermon on the Mount, we see people giving, and we say, Jesus says, when you give, if we say the, that the people of God are giving people, and if the people of God are a praying people, we must also come to the conclusion that the people of God are a fasting people. One last verse out of the, out of the book of Joel. Joel 2 Verses 13, 12 and 13. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. If in your life you, you feel like you've you maybe walked away from God or you haven't fully committed to God, if you've made a commitment and stepped away from it, if you need the prayers of the church, if you've committed a public sin and you need to confess that, if you just need someone to pray with you, uh, it is our encouragement, our invitation to you that you would please uh, come forward as together we stand and sing.